I just want to share a few thoughts now about Christmas. Um, my six-year-old was in his Christmas concert at uh, school just earlier this week, and he played the part of an alien, that <laughs> well-known character in the Christmas nativity scene. Uh, and uh, he and a, and a bunch of his fellow aliens, the, uh, the plot is that they crash-landed on Earth, and they landed at Christmas time, and uh, they were trying to work out why, why, do, why do human beings celebrate Christmas? Now, fortunately, um, there was a, a bunch of school children on hand who could explain to them in song uh, what the real meaning of Christmas is. And I remember thinking, um, gosh, that would be interesting. If an alien crash landed in our front room, their first question was about why we're celebrating Christmas, but okay. Um, but if that were to happen, and uh, we were to be in a position where we had to try and explain. We didn't have a handy choir of school children available to us. And we had to um, explain why we celebrate Christmas. Here's what Christmas is all about. Like, where would we begin? How would we go about trying to answer that question? Would we go to some of the Christmas classics? Would we start with Mariah Carey? And all I want, you know, all I want for Christmas is you. Would we go earlier to... Last Christmas by Wham. Would we take them right back to 1940s and 50s and I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas by Bing Crosby? Or, um, if we really wanted to cut to the heart of it, would we go all the way back to the choir of angels that were there on that hill outside of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? And they were singing their song to the shepherds. And the words of their song we just had read to us by Deji, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And one of the things that I always find important to remember when we take a journey back from the modern uh, experience of Christmas to what happened at that first Christmas is uh, as we go from Mariah Carey to the Choir of Angels, we are in some ways traveling from a Christmas that is uh, a little bit kind of the Christmas card, kind of perfect snowy scene of Christmas, the, the John Lewis advert Christmas, the Disney Christmas, back to... Um, the reality of what that first Christmas was. And whilst I love so much of what we do to celebrate Christmas today, uh, it wasn't a lot like it. Um, you know, Christmas today can be quite glittery, but the first Christmas with Mary and Joseph was, was gritty in lots of ways. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of driving a woman who is about to give birth to hospital, but I can tell you it's not a very glittery experience. It's, um, it's terrifying. And uh, Joseph here has to get Mary to Bethlehem. This is, a lot, this is like a week-long journey. And they're not driving in a car. At best, she's riding on, on, on a donkey for some of the time. At nine months pregnant, she'll also be walking a fair bit of the way. And, uh, you know, and then when they get there, it's the opposite of glamorous. It's the, the, the town is packed because of the census that's been called, so there's, there's no room for them anywhere. Um, this is the equivalent of turning up in a town and the only travel lodge you can find is fully booked and they won't let you in. Um, and, and I always think, well, there must have been some space somewhere in somebody's house, but they just didn't want to make the room, you know? And part of the reason for that, I think, would be that Mary and Joseph were the opposite of influencers. They, they were not successful people by the standards of the time. They, were, they, were, they lived in poverty, uh, they were peasant. You know, Mary was a peasant girl, a, a, a teenager who was pregnant outside of marriage at a time when that was, there was a social stigma attached to that. And, uh, and so in the end, the best they got was somebody saying, well, there's a stable. 
you know, on the side of my house. If you want, you, you can use that. That's like turning up at the Travelodge and they say, well, we've got a garage that's attached to the back. You know, if you want, you can go and give birth there between the broken bikes and the tools. And so there's, there's nothing glamorous about it. It's pretty gritty. And, and actually, the more I think about that, the more I'm drawn to that. Because uh, what I love about it is that this is a story that's real and that has significance not just for the exciting run-up to December the 25th, but after the turkey is eaten and after the presents have been unwrapped. And when we hit January and we look at our bank balance and we consider the heating bills and we look ahead at the weather and it's all very grim, this story has relevance for then as much as it does for now. And um, if we were to kind of just tell the let's say we're back with the alien in the front room. We tell the alien, oh, this is what happened at the first Christmas. The alien might well say to us, why are you celebrating that? That this teenager gave birth to a baby in an in a ancient equivalent of a garage. Why celebrate? And that's a good question. And uh, it reminds me of something that happened a few Christmases ago for us. In my wife's extended family, we do Secret Santa at Christmas. And Beth always puts a lot of thought and energy into the presents that she buys for people. And so she bought the person she was buying for something amazing. And then the person who was her secret center, who we did find out who it was, um, gave her a box. And Beth unwraps the, the wrapping paper from this box. And it's um, a box of coat hangers. That was the present. And she was just really annoyed. Um, obviously, you can't let on when you're in the circle because you just have to, oh, say it. this is exactly what I wanted. Uh, so you just pretend, but she was really annoyed. I remember we shoved it in the boot, you know, drove home, and then we got home, she just was going to chuck it straight in our black bin before we even walked in the house. And I said, no, don't do that, you know, they're nice coat hangers. It said, like, velvet coat hangers on the box. So she said, all right, so we, we just put it in the corner. And I remember a few weeks later, I thought, I'll do a nice thing for her. I'll get these coat hangers out, and I'll hang up her clothes. And um, she wasn't there, so I opened up this box of coat hangers, and then there was just this all this newspaper inside of it. I thought, that's weird. It's a big box. So I, I kind of rummaged through the newspaper, and then right um, beneath all this newspaper, I found this beautiful sort of like sculpture of a, of a reindeer, this like golden sculpture with the antlers, and it had all these little holes on the antlers where you could put the candles, and it was about this big. And uh, I remember thinking, thank goodness we didn't chuck that in the bin. Um, and, and saying to Beth, this is, this is what was in it. And it was just one of those little reminders for me that, you know, we all need to remind sometimes that in unremarkable packaging, in things that on the surface don't look like they're, they're worth a lot, you can find remarkable things. And this is the kind of thing we might need to explain to the alien when we're trying to get them to get what Christmas is all about. We might say, don't be put off by this tattered box. Don't be put off by what looks like something that's not worth a lot, because what happens is if you rummage inside, if you, if you clear away some of the newspaper, the, you know, the straw and the, the animals and the stable and the fact that there's no room for, for them there, if you, if, you, if you get that to one side for a moment, you look right what's nestled right in the heart of the story, what you see is something utterly magnificent. You meet someone incredibly beautiful. And um, what you find is that the Lord of heaven is born on the earth. And in some ways, uh, you know, if I was 
trying to explain this to the alien. I think at that point, I would need, personally, I would need to pause just to reflect on the wonder of that. And, and sometimes I thought, you know what, if we were there, maybe we'd wonder at it more. Um, you know, we weren't there to hear the first cry that Jesus made. And we didn't get to see them cut the umbilical cord off his tummy. We weren't, we weren't there to be able to feel what it was like to hold him as his tiny little naked warm body wriggled around in, in the arms of his parents. Uh, we didn't get to hear the sound of the animals in the background or to see the relief on the faces of his parents. We weren't there when, when the shepherds burst in, a moment I would have loved to have seen, in, in their excitement, looking around for the baby the angels had been singing about. And that would have been amazing. But in some ways, I, I think the distance between us and that stable, those 2,000 years, they, they serve not to dull the wonder of what happens in that moment, but if, if possible, to sharpen it to give us a new perspective, because we look at that baby with the eyes of history and with the full lenses of the scripture, and what we get to see is that the same being who commanded the stars into existence, uh, stars so big that our planet would fit into them a million times over, this same being is born with fingernails so small they're the size of a grain of rice that the one who has the vision to create the universe, who sees it before it ever exists, he can't open his eyes when he first comes out. That the one who spoke the world into motion didn't learn his first word until he was about 12 months old, if he was a quick learner. That the one who sustains all things is now dependent on his mum for everything. Why celebrate Christmas? Because 2,000 years ago, at Christmas, God was born among us. He became one of us. He came close. And for me, one of the things that staggers me about it, even more than just all of that, is, is the why, is the reason that he would choose to do this. And one of the ways that it helps me process it, it's a bit random, but um, Mike has a fish pond in his back garden. And occasionally when he's away, he'll get me to go and feed his fish. And, and let's say that one afternoon, you and I are chatting, and I say, do you know what? I really love Mike's fish. I love his fish so much, I'm seriously thinking about having an operation and becoming a fish. Now, how would you respond if I said that? You'd say, Andy, you're crazy. Look at you. You're massive. Aren't you like a huge five foot nine? You're going to give up that massive height to become a tiny little fish? You might say to me, Andy, you've got an incredible memory. You can remember things from two, sometimes even three days ago. You're going to give a memory like that up so you can have this tiny little fish mind that forgets things after a few seconds? What are you thinking? You might say to me, Andy, you've got such freedom at the moment. You can get in your car. You can drive off to exotic locations, Hemel Hempstead, Luton. On a good day, St. Albans. You can go to any of these places and you're gonna give that out, that freedom to just swim around in this tiny little pond. What are you thinking, right? And let's say to you, I just said, no, I'm gonna do it. And then I just went ahead against all your objections. I had the surgery, I became a fish and you came to the pond and you had a little look there and there I was swimming around with all the other fish. What would you be thinking as you left that pond? Many, many things, probably. 
But one of the things that you would definitely think is, you know what, I don't understand why he did it. I've no idea actually how that surgery took place. But what I do know is that when he said, I really love Mike's fish, he was not joking. He really must love those fish a lot. If he's going to give up that to become one, my word, he must love them. The idea of my becoming a fish, I put it to you, is less ridiculous than the idea of the creator of the heavens becoming a tiny baby. And yet he does, not giving up his divinity, but taking on our humanity. He becomes one of us. And the reason is love. Because he doesn't want to love from far away. He doesn't want to love from a distance. And I don't know what sort of pain you have experienced in the last year. I don't have a list of the specifics of the stresses that we've been through, the griefs that have hit us, the tragedies we've had to endure. Nor do I know the fears that you have about the year ahead, the unknown future, the rest of the winter. But it's a scary time to be alive, and it's been an uncertain few years, and sadly it looks like it's going to continue that way for a while longer. I don't know the sort of relationship pain that you have experienced, or the physical pain you have been through. But what I do know from this story is that the Lord of light is born into the darkness, that he lives in the darkness, that he himself experiences hardship and grief, fear and pain and rejection. And so when he says to us, I love you and I understand what you're going through and you are not alone, there is a truth in that, not because he understands the theory of pain from afar, but because he has experienced it firsthand in person. He knows what it's like. God comes close. And for ages I thought, you know what? When he becomes Jesus, it's like God puts a disguise on. False beard, dark glasses, you know, God, but you can't spot him. And I've realized actually that whilst in a sense, he's, you, the majesty is somewhat veiled initially, although it becomes pretty obvious when you look for a little bit. What, what, what Jesus is doing is not disguising God, but revealing him to us. He's putting him on display. He's making him known. And what he shows us about what God is like, and I love this, and I never knew this about God until I came to know Jesus, is that God is humble. God is gentle. God is approachable. God is kind. God gives his love to those who have empty hands. This is what our God is like. And uh, this is why we celebrate at Christmas. And we celebrate not only, as if this weren't enough, not only that he comes close out of love, but also we celebrate that God comes to rescue us. And uh, I've been a Christian for a while, and I, I feel like the more I've got to know what the good news of Christianity is, the more I've come to understand that it is both brutal and glorious. And what I mean by brutal is it, it holds to us a mirror of what we're really like. And um, I think of it like the last couple of months, um, Beth and I, with our youngest son, Zachary, who is three, we've just noticed a shift in his behavior. Now, all toddlers are a handful. But he's just become really, really rude. 
And uh, we, we're like, you know what, we do need to address this. It's kind of cute, but also he's not going to have any friends. Um, so we need to sort of help him. And we realized we traced the source of it back to this um, kids TV program he's been watching called PJ Masks. And there is a villain in PJ Masks called Romeo that Zachary identifies strongly with. Um, and Romeo has a robot that he orders around. And so Zachary, that's what he, he took to doing with us. So he would just say, get me a snack, robot. Like that would be, and, and that would be the tone of everything he said. Robot, don't do that, robot, right? And so we thought, okay, we need to ban PJ Masks. So we told him PJ Masks is broken. You cannot watch it anymore. And we switched his program to something called Supertato. Now, for those who don't know, Supertato is um, a potato with superpowers. And he protects the veggies. And he protects them from the evil pea. And uh, my son, Zachary, rather than identifying with the veggies, uh, you know, some of the veggies, or, or the soup potato, has identified with the evil pea. Um, and, and so I realized my plan had backfired when we were sitting there, the, five, the six of us as a family, over the dinner table. And Zachary just turned to the rest of us and announced to us, I am the evil pea, and you are my mini peas. Um, we're his, like, hench peas, his little minions that he orders around now to do this. And, and so... And so the evil pea calls people nitwits. And I can say with absolute confidence, my son was next door at the first service calling all the children's workers nitwits. Um, he, I remember I cut him up the other day when he was on his little scooter, and he just turned to me in fury and just said, you thwarted my plan, you stupid potato. <laughs> I know, right. So now we're like, okay, we've got a banned soup potato as well. I'm running out of children's burgers I can put. Um, but uh, if I can put it like this, what the scripture does is it holds a mirror up to our souls and it says there is an evil pea inside all of us that we like to think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm the hero of the story, right? And it, what it says is actually that the line between good and evil, hero and villain, does not run between us and them. It runs right down the heart of every human being. That all of us, not always, but often enough, go for the selfish option rather than the sacrificial one. And what, what every other major religion says is that if you want to get salvation, if you want to get to heaven, here's, here's a ladder, you can climb up it. And the ladder is a list of rules. It's some set behaviors. If you behave in this way, if you perform like this, you'll make it and you'll get in. Christianity is, is a lot um, more realistic, I think, as a, as a judge of our characters. And it, it says to us, you cannot do it. This is a ladder you cannot climb. Even in your best week, you won't manage it. Not because the, because the standard is not the person next door to us, but it's the Lord of heaven. It's to be like him, and none of us will ever get there. So it sounds not like good news, but then it becomes incredible news when we hear the next part of it, which is this. But here's how the message of Christmas works. Not that we have to climb a ladder to him, but that he came down the ladder to us. He came to find us, that he gives himself, his very heart to us, and we do not deserve him, and we never will, but he, he loves us anyway, and what that means is we can never undeserve him, and we can never lose him, that salvation is a gift to all, given to all who want to receive him, all who want to come to know him. And 
to finish, and Paul and Evelina, why don't you guys come up, because they're going to play for us as, as, uh, after this. But to finish, this is where I want to land this talk. It may be that, you know, obviously an alien hasn't crash-landed uh, into our front room, but perhaps you have crash-landed into this carol service at the end of what has felt like a challenging time. And maybe you have a question. Why celebrate Christmas? Once you get past the food and, and the presents, what is it all about? And this is the final thought I'll leave with. It's, it's about a God who loves us and a God who rescues us, that we come into his family and to eternity, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done. We can't take credit for it any more than someone who's pulled from a burning building can take credit for being rescued. We let him save us. But here's, here's really, if you want to get to the heart of it, why we celebrate. It's because the story of the first Christmas is true. And that as remarkable as I know it sounds, this God is who we meet in the person of Jesus. And I found this out for myself when I was 17. I grew up in a, a Christian home, and so I'd been around this for a long time, but just it hadn't made much sense to me, and I, I drifted away. And then when I was 17, by the time I hit that age of my life, I was um, thinking I had it sorted, but knowing really deep down inside I didn't. And on the surface, you would have probably not known, but inside I was, I was pretty cold and closed off and, and also quite afraid, although I wouldn't admit it to myself. Uh, but afraid that somehow I wouldn't perform in this life and that would mean I would get rejected by people, that I'd be a failure and therefore I wouldn't be loved. And then I found in God, a God who loves me in my weakness, a God who sees the darkest parts of my heart and still chooses to stay. And I found to my utter joy as well as my ongoing amazement that he really is there. He really does love us. He really has become one of us. And he really does offer his hand to all who take it. And offer his heart as well. This is why we celebrate at Christmas. He's why.